I love therapy, and in fact, I've been going to therapy since I was around six years old. Though I talk about therapy a lot and may interview some therapists on the show on occasion, nothing that is said in this podcast should be considered a replacement for therapy. If you are struggling, I urge you to please seek guidance from a therapist because you are absolutely worth it. Dalton coming at you in a really great mood for some reason. Um, I woke up at 6 a.m. this morning and I had to run an errand for work and uh, woke up so I could do some things before that because I just was feeling lazy as fuck last night. So I got up at 6 a.m. I did some stuff around my apartment and then I left early to go and drive out to do what I had to do for work. Um, and then I got to office at nine and yeah, I'm just, I'm in a really good mood for some reason. Um, I mean, I guess that's a good thing, right? I don't know why I said for some reason. Life's, life's okay. I guess that's the reason. Um, I've actually been in a pretty good mood all week. I am going to give the credit to a couple, um, 60 degree days that we've had in the middle of February. Um, and today it's snowing. So drastic changes almost feels like I'm back home in Michigan. Okay, so following up from last week, I did a shout out on both TikTok and Reddit, which are my um, social medias of choice at this current moment, uh, just to get a sense of, you know, people who have had their relationships impacted by the pandemic. You know, what happened? What were the reasons? And uh, based on the research that I did and the information that I gleaned from others, it kind of came down to a few main themes and I'm not surprised by any of them. So uh, number one, it's important to point out that as we've mentioned last week and as everybody knows, spikes of breakup and, and divorces were completely up um, in 2020. And I think, I don't know what the data is in 2021 or thus far in 2022. It's probably too early now for that. But they were sky high. Um which I guess isn't surprising. You know, the first thing you think of is people who are married, you have to quarantine for a really long time. And that could be really, your spouse can drive you nuts. Your partner can drive you nuts. Um, And it's a time because of the anxiety that goes along with it, where the emotions are heightened and there are really intense feelings. And it kind of can create a perfect storm of sorts. Um, I think that's, you know, definitely what happened in in my situation. So some of the reasons that I found main themes for, you know, why relationships were impacted, why, why they ended during the pandemic. So first we have quarantine was just too much. Kind of like I said before, you know, you're with this one person, you can't really see other people and little habits that maybe you didn't notice before are going to start coming out. Or, you know, another thing that was mentioned was differences were just made more apparent by the fact that you were spending so much time together. Um, Another issue, which is complete opposite, is long distance. People were in long distance relationships and who had to quarantine weren't able to fly to see each other or, you know, drive to see each other in some cases. 
And that made it really difficult to sustain a relationship. So space, um, whether it be too much or too little, seems to be a really big theme. Another thing that came up is there are people with differing levels of comfort. Um, You know, I myself, my anxiety, my OCD, really, which I thought I was over, but surprise, the pandemic made it very apparent that I am not. The anxiety was just a lot. Even if like, you know, you're a pretty lax person, somebody who doesn't get anxious a a lot, like we were in completely unprecedented times. I remember my partner and I running to the Whole Foods at like seven o'clock on a Monday morning. And that was when it really, really set in that shit was about to get real. I mean, people were already starting to hoard toilet paper. The aisles just were completely wiped of food. It was frankly terrifying. Um, so I think that differing levels of comfort plays into that because, you know, some people were less worried. And if you were somebody who was less worried and your partner was somebody who was a little more careful, then, you know, that it just, you need to navigate that and navigating that can be really difficult. Um, and vice versa, you know, if you are a person who is anxious and your partner, you know, just cares less and or is less worried about it doesn't mean that they don't care but they're less worried about it that can exacerbate your anxiety even more so uh i definitely think that that plays into it as well the diff the differing levels of comfort and that kind of plays into the next point which is mental health um and stress like look we were all fucking going through it during the pandemic it was i mean we're still in the pandemic technically but in those beginning stages the unprecedented time that we're talking about in early 2020. We were all going through it. And there were studies that showed that a lot of people's mental health was suffering. And I'm, I mean, I know I was one of them. I, I think that everybody, you know, had difficulties in that area in one level or another. But that can be a struggle for a couple as well. If you are having mental health issues and your partner feels like, the only person that you can lean on well that's not a lot of that's not very fair to put all of that pressure on one person um and it can take a toll it can absolutely take a toll and so i think that uh what i got was that in a lot of cases most people mentioned that it just became too much um the 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 strain it just became very strained and it just became too much um another thing that came up was finances I mean, finances are already the number one leading cause for divorce. So I guess it's not surprising that it would, you know, again, I'm using this word a lot, but be exacerbated by the pandemic, especially when the levels of unemployment were so high. So, um, yeah, finances, space, mental health, um, and just differences, differences becoming more apparent over the course were kind of the main themes that I found. I am going to link two articles in the episode notes, one from the New York Times and one from the BBC, which kind of, you know, talk about exactly what I just did. The New York Times articles kind of about how to navigate um, that feeling of isolation during the breakup. And uh, the BBC article kind of explains, you know, some of the reasons that I've outlined here. Thank you to everybody who gave me, you know, your story, your information for how this impacted you. you know, that's that's what I like to do is to hear people's stories. And I'm really sorry that you have gone or are going through that. I know it's really, really tough. I'm just going to read a little clip from the BBC article because this section um, really resonated with me. 
Relationship experts believe that even strong couples who weren't facing problems before the pandemic and avoided major shifts in household health or dynamics may also be susceptible to breakups. This is because the pandemic has taken away well-established routines that offered comfort, stability, and rhythm, explains Ronan Stillman, a psychotherapist and spokesperson for the UK Council for Psychotherapy. Shout out. Without these, this leaves partners with limited opportunities to seek other forms of support or stimulation beyond their relationship, which can put them under strain. Stillman says, more people are finding themselves trapped in a situation where they're struggling to cope with what's going on for them, as well as what's going on between them. Like a pressure cooker that does not let any pressure out, the lid can eventually pop and the relationship breaks down. Didn't I call in the last episode this entire thing like a pressure cooker, the idea of relationships in the pandemic being a pressure cooker, just so many things, one person's your source of support and it just kind of blows up, like... I think that really sums it up. Perfect storm, pressure cooker, all those analogies. Um, but yeah, for me, it was really interesting to, you know, kind of hear what other people's experiences were, get a sense of what happened um, in individuals' lives and how that impacted uh, their relationships. Because let's be honest, that's what it is, right? What's happening in your individual relationships is impacting how you are interacting with another person which impacts the relationship. So thank you very much, everybody, again, for sharing that. We're going to do a quick segue. Um, so in early 2020, I also read a lot of articles about concerns for people who were in abusive relationships during the uh, early stages of major, major quarantine and how scary that is because there's no escape at that point. You feel even more isolated than usual. Um, so we're going to be talking about abusive relationships today. This is your content warning. I am going to be interviewing author Christina Hogue. Um, it's a very, very good conversation. You know, we did have an article with my friend B last year about her experience um, leaving an abusive relationship. And so I tried to space this one out a little bit further. But you know what? It happens to multiple people. So there's just going to be different stories about it because different people have different experiences. Um, yeah, so content warning uh, for the second half of this episode. You know, it, it might be a little dark and could be triggering for some listeners. Christina is an author, uh, Skin of Tattoos, most recently Law of the Jungle, which is a novella. And today we're going to be talking about her young adult novel, Girl on the Brink, uh, which is about her experience in an abusive relationship, but put against the backdrop of a teenager's life. Because uh, as she says, she thinks it's very important that people notice the signs um, early, early in life and be aware of them as you go into to dating. So I have been reading Girl on the Brink and um, it's a difficult read. Uh, it's, you know, it's not that it's a bad book. It's because the subject matter is tough and it quite honestly reminds me quite a bit of my first relationship when I was a teenager. Um, just the, the possessiveness that the guy has, how he kind of treats... Um, the girl like an object or like she's a prize that he gets to show off and uh just kind of how volatile it can all be when you you know ask for space or, or try to get some distance and how they just kind of suck you back in again so uh yeah I have to read it only a little by little kind of chapter by chapter because it just it it hits so hard and while it's good to have you know content out there that is educational and relatable you know it can also be 
be difficult. So um, it's definitely worth a read, uh, especially, you know, to get the, to hear the signs, um, a good book to, you know, share with your daughters and your sons. Um, yeah, so I guess with that, uh, we're going to cut to a quick commercial break, and then you will get to listen to Christina tell her story uh, right after this. Calling all citizens of Halcyon City. The newest generation of heroes are now painting the pages of Delinquent Comics, an actual play podcast in the game world of Masks, a new generation. Join our heroes as they struggle to build a team and save the city. Can Titan escape the shadow of his mentor burnout? Is Soul's overwhelming power too dangerous to control? Will Muse discover her past? And how does White Knight stomach all those strange snacks? Listen to Delinquent Comics to find out at allportsopen.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever podcasts are found. New issues become available to all citizens every other Monday. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. I am here today with my guest storyteller, uh, Christina Hogue. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you, Rachel? I'm doing okay. Hanging in there. (laughs) Life is life is good. We're all we're all here and alive. So uh, what more can we ask for? Right? Right. And finally, I think we're emerging slowly but surely out of this pandemic. Yes, I know. It's been a terrible year. It really has. <laughs> so we're, we're getting closer, though. Um, and that's, again, what matters. So mm-hmm. uh, we're going to be talking about some kind of serious topics today. So just, you know, for our listeners to let them know. Um, but yeah, let's uh, kind of just start with tell me about who you are um, and what your story is. Uh, feel free to take as much time as you want. I know that it might be a little longer. So I just might ask questions as, as we go in. Oh, OK, sure. Yeah, um, as Rachel said, it's, uh, I'm Christina, and it's about, let's see, it's about 13 years ago, I got involved in an abusive relationship, and, uh, well, just a little bit, I guess, of background on me. I'm a journalist, uh, and I was at that time. I was a, uh, working at a news, newspaper reporter at the time, and, um, yeah, and I write books and now I freelance, write and edit and my fiction. So that's kind of what I do. Um, and then the story we're going to be talking about is, is yeah, about uh, how I got myself into this abusive relationship and more importantly, how I got myself out. Mm-hmm. As, I sh- as I'm sure many people realize it's usually easier to get yourself into things than it is to get yourself <laughs> out, you know? Definitely true. (laughs) Yes. So, um, but it was a, you know, it was kind of a watershed uh, experience in my life. It definitely taught me so much about human nature and human relationships and just people in general. And um, in a strange way, I'm even thankful I went through it. It was was a very painful experience, obviously, and just very uh, humiliating and a whole bunch of things, but, um, ultimately it, it made me a better person and, um, and just a a more, um, I think aware person of, you know, people's, people's problems that they have. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So when I met this guy, I was actually living in Miami, um, 
now I live in Los Angeles, and um, uh, he uh, came on really strong at first, which is very typical of an abuser. It's, um, they call it love bombing, uh, yes. for the yes. term. Um, and I was extremely flattered by this. Um, and I just thought, I mean, I literally thought this was like a movie, a Hollywood movie coming true. You know, this guy was calling me. He was, uh, he lived in California. He would call me at all hours of the day and night. Oh, Christina, I just wanted to, uh, hear your voice. Oh, um, you know, I just wonder what you're doing. I just can't get you out of my mind. Um, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. Uh, and I was just sort of really taken aback. I didn't really know what to do. And, you know, sending me flowers, um, you know, flying across the country on a Friday afternoon on an impulse. Just I could I just had to see you, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it was just very. Again, it, it just seemed like it was it was out of a movie. And I thought that re I had found the one, you know, and he just basically swept me off my feet, that, that whole thing. Um, and I hadn't known him or I had known him for a little while before we actually got, and I, I was going out with someone else and he just kept calling me and, you know, we were friends and our phone calls gradually got longer and longer. And um, finally I broke up with the, the guy I was seeing who I didn't like that much, actually. <laughs> so anyway, I got rid of it. So I said, oh, yeah, you'll be pleased to know I've got out. He's like, oh, you can finally go out with me then. And I said, yes. <gasps> and, you know, and he just, we went to a, a restaurant, uh, Miami Beach, and it was sunset, you know, and this warm breeze, you know, in the evening. And in Miami, it's very warm in the evenings. And I just had a glass of wine, and he just sort of looked at me and just said, tell me all about yourself. And I felt myself sort of literally just kind of slipping right into that smile he had. It was just like this really um, surreal kind of experience. And I just, you know, started talking about myself, which was very unusual for me because I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of a shy person. And, you know, my, my career as a journalist was always ideal for me because the focus is always on who, on the interviewee, mm -hmm. not the interviewer. And so I, you know, I had always just kind of focused on other people rather than myself. And to have someone just all of a sudden want to know every detail of my life was just, you know, it was really um, powerful. You know, I felt like empowered, validated that I hadn't often felt like that. And, you know, that was just it. You know, I think it was just that moment that I it just sort of, you know, this guy's really into me for myself. You know, it wasn't sex. It wasn't anything else. He just seemed really enamored of me. Yeah. And I hadn't really felt that before. So I, so, you know, embarked on this, this very heady um, romance. And as I said, he was just, you know, all over me at the, at the time, calling me at work, calling me at home and, you know, coming over and all this sort of stuff. And, and then Gradually, you know, strange, odd things started cropping up. He would, you know, he needed sort of taking care of. I had to take him. He, he threw up one time. He had like a blood clot in his stomach. He had stomach problems. I ended up taking him to the hospital. And, oh, thank you so much. You know, I don't have anyone to do that for me. So he made me feel really like needed. Sure. Um, he lost. He was always losing things, um, you know, his keys. So 
one day I actually came back from work to my house where he was staying and and looked for his car keys, you know, found them right there in the in the front yard, you know. Um, you know, this kind of thing and took off work to take him to a specialist and, and then came, you know, drove all the way from Miami to Fort Lauderdale then back to work then back up to Lauderdale. Then back. He's just like, oh, he was just so grateful. And I was just this, you know, you know, perfect person, you know, and I, you're the one for me. And I, and just a couple weeks into this whole thing, he was saying, I love you. And I said, mm-hmm. um, well, you, you know, actually you don't really know me. How can you? say that he's like oh I know you know I know you know I'm older than you and he was older than me and um so I've, I've been around and I, I know you know I know when this is the, this is you're, you're the one for me and I know what this is and so then you know I mean it was just like this full-on assault so even if I'd and, and and in fact so things kind of you know these these odd things kept cropping up and then I don't know, maybe a month or two into the relationship, he started getting weirdly jealous of my next door neighbor. And he once blocked me, you know, she came to the door to see me and he would sort of block me at the, um, at the doorway. And I was like behind him and he was saying, no, Christina can't, can't talk to you right now. You know, she, she's, you know, not available or she, she's, she doesn't want to talk to you or stuff like that. And I'm, I'm like behind him but he wouldn't let me talk to the neighbor. Hmm. And I thought that was really weird. So of course she thought that was, you know, totally weird, which it was a mm-hmm. uh, total red flag. Um, you know, and he, and if I would call him on these things, he'd be like, I'm just looking out for you. You know, I'm, you know, and everybody was jealous of me. Everybody, you know, people are jealous of you, Christina. You, you don't really realize your own worth. Um, you know, you shouldn't hang out with her. What are you doing hanging out with her? You shouldn't, you know, you should be with someone your own, you know, your own level and blah, blah, blah. And every, every friend that I had, he wanted to meet all my friends, but then he would kind of put them down in this ah. weird back. It was almost like a backhanded compliment to me because they were being jealous of me because I was so great, but you know, I, they didn't deserve being friends with me. I mean, it was like this weird sort of thing. So like, it was very hard to counteract that kind of reasoning. And then at the one night he he was the first sort of real sign um we went to a casino and it was with some friends of hers and there were some guys there you know some couples and so i walked ahead of the group a little bit with one of the the guys just talking or whatever and he started yelling at me he was behind me and started yelling at me to get him a, a glass of water and i'm like and i just ignored it. i'm like you know by this time i was like why I'm not his servant, you know, mm-hmm. why should I run away and get him water or whatever? And so then he just stormed off into the sort of, you know, he just left us and everybody thought this was really weird. And so I just got, you know, hang out, hang out with the group. And when we went to the bar, had a drink or something. So like half an hour later, he shows up and he just starts yelling at me in the middle of the, the casino bar and calling me an asshole. And, you know, you're just one of them and blah, 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 blah. And I said, I want to go home. And, uh, and I, this was before the days of Uber and stuff like that. And he had, of course, had driven and it was actually a fair way from my house. So I didn't know how I was going to get home. But still, I said, you know, I'm going to go, well, I'll take you. I'll take you home. I brought you here. I'll take you home. So I'm like, okay, fine. So I agreed to that. And then he just harangued me the whole time, you know, and actually pulled off the highway and just sat there and then just harangued me about my behavior. And then, and then, then he went into a profuse 
you know, apology mode. You know, I don't know what happens to me. I'm just so in love with you and blah, blah, blah. Please forgive me. And, you know, at the end, of course, I had to forgive him because he actually wouldn't move the car unless I yeah. said, okay, I, I want, you know, it was like this false imprisonment type thing. Um, and he wouldn't, he wouldn't budge the car unless I said I forgave him. You know, that was the only way I was going to get home. Um, and, it, you know, and so things just sort of started piling up. But I, but again, the high that I got from him was just so intense. Then he would do things. It, it made him very, very difficult to sort of break it off with him. Then, it, you know, like one weekend we went to Key West and he just treated me like this princess. He, you know, tucked me in on the beach, went and got me drinks. Then he, you know, drew me a bath in the, in the hotel room and he paid for the whole thing at this expensive place. Um, you know, so, you know, then he treated, you know, I was back up on this pedestal again. You know, so yeah. it was just like this crazy sort of, you know, pulling me off the pedestal, then putting me back on the pedestal. And it was just so it was like constantly my mind was spinning. I didn't know where I was or what I was doing. And he wouldn't leave you. And of course, you know, now with the benefit of hindsight, I see this is typical abuser um, Definitely. behavior, you know, because they don't leave you, give you enough time to think. Um, that's why they're always on top of you and controlling mm -hmm. you and, um, they Constant don't want whiplash. you to, right. And they don't, and they, they keep you sort of on this edge. Um, and then he's finally started this thing that you have to come to LA. And I said, I don't, I don't know, you know, I was saddled or whatever. I had a house and all this stuff and we'll come out. I'll pay for you to come out and, you know, you'll see what, how nice it is or blah, blah, blah. So I said, okay. So then again, that happened. Um, this was the second, and this time it was a really uh, scary blow up. We went out to dinner with a bunch of people. Um, I, got, you know, we left, got in his car, then he went to a gas station. He went to pay at the gas station, came back, and it was like a Jekyll and Hyde um, change, you know, conversion. I mean, and his face was all contorted, and he was in this terrifying rage and just started you know, in on me that I was flirting with all these, the guys that the waiter told me I was uh, screwing some one guy in the, you know, at the table and in the, in the hallway by the bathrooms and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I saw you, this guy, and you just wanted to do this and that. And I mean, it was just like this crazy thing. And then he drove off and, and I didn't know where I was, of course, we went to his office mm -hmm. and then he kind of we were there in his office and I, and, and I wanted to go home. I said, I, I want to leave. I want to leave. And he wouldn't leave. And then he was on the phones, you know, yelling about me, this, uh, call me a name. What did he call me? A scumbag or a bitch or something. So at that point I didn't know what to do. So I just lay on this couch face down and thought, well, maybe that'll, I just won't react. And then of course he started coming over and shoving me with his knee, get up, get up. And, Finally, we got back to his place, um, and then I, I said, you know, I'm, I'm leaving. I just wanted to get to the airport. You know, I was going to take a taxi to the airport, just get on the first plane, do anywhere, you know. <laughs> and then he just grabbed my wrist and threw me. Um, and luckily, I landed against the bed, not the dresser. Mm. And I was a little stunned, and I could see his he was holding his fists like, you know, he was going to do something else. And he was, he was holding himself back, I think. And, he, you know, he's really tense. 
And then he changed again into this profuse apology mode. And, oh, I didn't mean it. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, you can't leave. You don't want to ruin what we have. And I said, no, no, I'm going to leave. And he, and he you know, I, he's like, okay, I'll let you go. But I'm going to take you to the airport. No, I said, I want to, I'm just going to take a taxi. No, no, no. And then he blocked me, you know, followed me kind of down the hall. And then he blocked me in, at the door again. And I couldn't get out. And I just felt so like overcome and so terrified. And now he was being nice again. It was almost like he was rescuing me from himself. From himself. Yeah. And so then I felt incredibly grateful (laughs) that he had changed. And um, so then I sort of melted back into the, you know, said, okay, you know, and of course I did want the relationship, the good relationship, you know, the one where I was treated like a, a princess, not this weird mental, you know, breakdown thing. He these, these rages he would go into. So that sort of, you know, then I think, I guess he knew that I would survive these, these, um, his rages, you know, cause he knew very well that he, he had a tendency to go into these rages. So, um, you know, then I was, I was hooked. And then um, finally he sort of harangued me and browbeat me and I agreed to move to, to LA. I was going to rent out my house. I said, well, in case it doesn't work out, oh, you're not committed to this relationship, blah, 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 blah. And I want to marry you. I want to have a baby with you, all this stuff. I'm going to, you know, um, uh, you can be a screenwriter in LA. You can be a star. You're so much talented, you know, and you're wasted out here in, in Miami. This is, you know, blah, blah, blah. You're not going to get another chance. I mean, it was just on and on and on till finally I gave in, you know, and, um, and I moved. Um, and it was pretty soon after that, that I knew I had made a massive mistake because did you move separately or did you move in with him? I moved in with him. Yeah. Okay. Scary. We got this apartment, but then it turned out that all the stuff he'd had, no credit rating. He had a, he couldn't have a bank account for some reason. And so I had to get the apartment in my name. And, and I mean, I mean, it was just all this, this, these weird things that I just couldn't figure out how he lived, you know? And I thought he had a lot of money because he was always spending a ton of money and he didn't, you know, this was all show. And again, he did, you know, he spent a lot of money. He didn't have a money to, to, um, to keep going like that. So it, it was just this crazy thing. And of course, soon after that, the, you know, I was, I was pulled off the pedestal more and more and it was long, it took longer and longer for me to put be put back up on, on the pedestal. And maybe it was, I don't know, a month later or two months later, I was off the pedestal forever. You know, I was just, you know, now trapped basically. And yeah. I'd given up my job I'd, uh, you know, given up my house. Um, and, you know, it was just these these really terrifying rages that he would go into. Um, one time he left me stranded at the beach. And I, I went, he was on the phone talking business really loudly. I was bored. So I just went, you know, down the beach for a walk. When I came back, he had he'd left me. Um, and he'd left my, just my sandals were there and, uh, and a book. And this woman, you know, who had seen the whole thing, she's like, are you married to him? And I said, no. She's like, leave him. <laughs> and then another woman said to me, uh, you know, are you okay? And I said, well, I don't know. I, I didn't even have my phone. He took my purse. And um, so I, I saw a, a sheriff's car and I um, 
went to the sheriff and I said, you know, my boyfriend just uh, left me stranded. Can I borrow your phone? So he's like, oh, okay. You know, he handed me the phone and, and I called him, well, I'll come back for you when I feel like it. So I don't know. I waited like a couple of hours and he finally came back to back oh for me and started railing at me. Everything was my fault. And I just didn't know what to do, you know, and it sounds, uh, you know, probably to some listeners and, and to people, they're like, well, why didn't you leave? Why didn't you just get up and go? It just, it just wasn't easy. And I can't really explain it. And I've read a lot about abusive relationships and uh, domestic violence since then. And it's, it's all I can say is it's like an addiction. Nobody has a mm-hmm. really good explanation for how they really get this emotional hook in you. Right. Um, almost maybe it's trauma bonding, you know, because they put you through, through such trauma. And then when they change back, um, again, you're kind of like grateful that they're. Right. No, I think that when you said like, it was like he was rescuing you from himself. I think that that's like there's such two extremes, right? That I feel like there's this relief that you have that you're not in the bad extreme anymore, quote unquote, like you're in the good extreme. Right, right. Uh, That's really, yeah, wow. So how long like did this go on fully? Do you think if you put a time on it? It it was about a year and a half. So, I mean, it got, you know, it just, you know, spiraled downward increasingly. And I thought I knew something was wrong with him. He had all these weird behaviors. He was addicted to um, Oxycontin as well, Mm. which he got under. He had a legitimate reason for it and went to a doctor. And this was kind of a little bit before the whole, you know, awareness about opioids. But I knew something was wrong about it, you know. He would take, he just loved pills. He would take, and at one point he wanted me to take all these pills. And I'm like, no, no. Um, So that didn't, you know, a lot of things he tried to get me to do, I I didn't go along with, luckily, and he kind of dropped them. But it was just, um, you know, crazy until finally I felt like I was the one that was crazy. And, and, and And I said, you need to see someone, you know, you need to get medication or, you know, Cause he would have, he, he knew something was wrong with him. And, you know, he's like, I don't, you know, you just don't know what it's like being me. I have this huge black hole inside me. Um, he'd had a, you know, an abusive childhood. So I felt really sorry for him and I mm-hmm. wanted to help him. That was the other thing, you know, the, the other dynamic that sort of came into it was that I wanted to help him. And I just thought, well, if he could get cured or, you know, get on meds or something, um, we'd have the perfect relationship. I mean, this was a guy that I actually told this to. I said, I think you're the angel sent to me from heaven. You're the angel that I deserve that I've been seeking my whole life. I mean, that's, you know, how sort of brainwashed I was or how deep he had sort of penetrated my my psyche. You know, he knew what I needed, I guess, in some weird way. And so I, you know, so I really gave it a, a shot of trying to get him to a therapist. I got him names of therapists and, um, you know, called and he never went. He never went and just said, you know, I've tried to do that. It's just too painful. I just can't do it. But in the meantime, I just, you know, he, it became impossible. And I felt like I was going crazy. You know, I was I was losing my sense of self. I didn't know who I was anymore. And you left everything. Yeah. And with this this total like emotional abuse, and you know, luckily he never got physically abusive. You know, it wasn't like he hit or punched or kicked me. Um, but he did other kinds of physical abuse, like driving really fast, which I which I later learned were um, signs of physical abuse. 
was like driving super fast on the highway to scare me, right. um, towering over me. He was, you know, over six foot. So he'd tower over me, um, you know, yell in my face, uh, punch the wall, uh, you know, talk about that he had got some friend of his out and, and although in New York had guns and I was like, okay. And, you know, I mean, this kind of weird thing, you know, I have friends who are cops, um, you know, these weird sort of little hints to, to yeah. be frightened of something. But finally I went to a therapist, you know, I just, and again, I couldn't tell him that I knew he wasn't going to approve. And, you know, I finally got myself there and told her, you know, a little bit of the story. And she said, you're, in an abusive relationship and you've got to get out. She said, it will be probably the hardest thing you've ever done, but you have to do it. And, you know, she was right. It, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. And I definitely did have to do it. Um, but it took me months to finally get away from him. I finally moved out. That was a whole other scene. Um, I was sort of moved into a hotel. I didn't know where he, where, uh, he didn't know where I was. Um, he went searching for me. He told me later, you know, uh, in hotels and stuff. And then I had a friend of a friend who was going on a, a trip. So I moved into it. She said, you can use my place for a while. So I used hers, her place. But he, then he would follow me. Um, mm -hmm. he, he would, you know, again, he found out where I was because he would uh, stalk me. You know, he found out where I um, and then I, I got a job. Um, so, you know, I ended up getting back together with him, although I wasn't living with him. And that was a key thing because I had that sure. space now. And I also was going to the therapist and stuff. And um, But that key thing was getting space. And I could just see that he this guy was nuts. But still, I couldn't, like, break it off entirely until a couple months later. It took me a couple months later. And again, it was almost like weaning yourself off exactly. addiction. Well, it's like when you when you feel unsafe, like, I mean, it's like I feel like uh, we as women try to explain a lot of men don't understand why we might be so kind to men that are being gross and hitting on us. Mm -hmm. And it's because, like, if you feel unsafe, sometimes it's easier and better to be polite for your own safety. Oh, absolutely. So yeah, it's kind yeah, of the same yeah, thing yeah. here for your own safety. Like you needed to create space slowly. You couldn't just do it all at once. Yeah. And um, so it was, it was winding down. And finally, I managed to just, you know, bring down the iron. Like, you know, the therapist said, you just you just have to bring down that iron curtain and you've got to hold it there. And again, he then, you know, once I sort of said that said, um, you know, he called. I had to change my number twice. Uh, he went to uh, the, the Sprint place and actually got my phone number, which is illegal for them to do. And I had to later lodge a complaint with Sprint about that. Um, you know, he had this uncanny ability to, he, he would push people to do things they didn't want to do, you know, including right. himself. And, um, you know, as, as I said, he stalked me, he cyber stalked me. I had to block him on every sort of email, social media, um, he would call me at my job. I got a job as a reporter and I had to work late nights sometimes. And he would call me when he knew I was the only one in the, in the newsroom and, um, and I'd pick up the phone. Oh, I'm right outside. Uh, and I'd be like, oh, shit, you know, and then, but, you know, there was, this, uh, I once, you know, called down to the security guard and I said, is there anyone there, you know, and he said no. And, but, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it just, it kind of went on and then he would like, 
go sort of go underground for a while, then he would pop back up and then it would, you know, be quiet for a while, then he'd pop back up. Um, until finally I thought I'd, you know, a, a year later, I thought I finally got rid of him. And all of a sudden I had the sheriff's deputies serving me with papers uh, for a restraining order. And everything <laughs> that he, everything that he'd done to me, you know, the, the, he had a fr his friends trying to, you know, his friends would call me and he would be like right there, you know, you know, telling them what to say and things like that. He found out where I was one time in Florida with my, at my mother's and flew down. I mean, he had just had this way of finding out stuff. And um, so, uh, yeah, so all the stuff that he did to me, he alleged that I did to him and he was going to get a restraining order against me. And again, I was, I freaked out. I, you know, I was just so scared. I didn't know what to do. Um, I had to go to this court hearing that the, the preliminary order had already been granted. So now I had to go show up at a hearing to, there's a, there's a second hearing to make the, the, the temporary order permanent, you know, for three to five years is usually mm -hmm. the term. And so I had, I filed a response to the court. I got a little bit of legal advice. Um, you know, you have to file this response. So that's, you know, I filed it. And, and his, his, his argument was just complete. His, his, you know, filing that the court work, paperwork was almost uh, illegible. I mean, it was just crazy. I mean, it looked like a, you know, crazy person. So I filed this very reasoned response. It was mm -hmm. uh, later a lawyer told me it was a little, probably a little too long, but uh, she said, yeah, she's, and um, then I went to the hearing, then he got the hearing continued. Uh, he wanted a more time to look for a lawyer or something. So the judge granted it and then he would, you know, he kind of leered at me in the hallway and talk, you know, would say these things. So finally I went over and stood by um, the sheriff's deputy in the courthouse. And I said, you know, can I just stand by you? Cause it's, he's scaring me. And he keeps, you know, coming up with, to me and saying things now, you know, the way restraining orders work, he can actually, because the order was against me, right? I couldn't say anything to him, but he could, come to me and say anything he wanted. That's the right. way it is. Yeah. So actually, luckily I knew this. I had done a bit of legal research. And um, so I never responded because if I had responded, I would automatically be in violation of the, of the order, which is a whole other, you know, thing. So, you know, I stood with the sheriff's deputy and, she, and then he staked out the entrance to the courthouse after the court hearing. And I could see him there with a bunch of people. And I just went back to the sheriff's deputy. I said, I'm, I'm really scared to go by him. He's, he's doing, and she said, don't worry, I'll get you out of the back, back door. So I left by the back door. And then, it, it's, so then I just decided I've, um, after two continuances and trying to do this on my own, um, I got a lawyer. I actually found yeah. a domestic violence support group and through oh, that amazing. I got a lawyer and, you know, she's like, she looked at its filing. She said, you know, this never should have gone through. This is ridiculous. So the next time, you know, he got the shock of his life when I showed up with a lawyer <laughs> and the judge <laughs> threw it out, you know, and the judge just tossed it. But I mean, and then luckily he disappeared um, after that. I didn't see okay. him anymore, maybe one time in a parking lot or something. Again, he would yeah. yell if I was with by, with someone, he he would yeah, he um, would never say anything, but if I was by myself, then he'd yell something, you know, if there was no witnesses. Hmm. So Wow, so it like it was the the legal thing that like was the thing that made him fuck off eventually. 
Yeah, because I think he knew at that point, I mean, I could go after him for harassment, you know, because that's right. what my lawyer said. This this is actually harassment. And, um, you know, my client is, you know, she broke it off with him and he's, you know, this is a revenge. And that's what I'd state in my court response. So he was, yeah. So I think he he knew that, you know, if he did anything more, I could really go after him. And of course, and I would have at that point, I had a lawyer, I had, you know, legal advice. Um so, you know, and I, and I started going to the support group and, um, and it just, you know, it was just like this saving thing that I found that other people had gone through the same exact thing, you know, as that people, you know, women went around the table telling their stories. I mean, it, you know, change a few details and it was my yeah. own story. Over it's and so over scary. Again. Yeah. I've heard the story. I've lived the yeah. story, you know it's the same across the board. It's, it's almost like, wait, did we all date the same person? Right. Right. It's really, it's, it's bizarre how this happens. And so then I, you know, I read some books about it too. And, um, you know, and then everything made sense. And, all, and of course I had misinterpreted all these red flag warnings, um, you know, that should have told me he was a dangerous person, but you know, I, I didn't know. I, again, you know, all his calling me and rushing to see me, that was all about controlling me. Um, it was about also the love bombing thing, but it was also about establishing control and checking mm. up on you, stuff like that. Wow. Well, I'm so f- glad that you were able to find that freedom eventually. Uh, I mean, that, you know, you found the strength to be able to walk away from it and that you found the support that you needed and uh, that you were able to to heal from it too. I mean, it, I know that it's really hard for many people to talk about this, but uh, I mean, you've clearly you know, you know done a lot of work and and uh, you know uh, you you wrote a book about the experience too, which must have been really healing. Yeah, I mean, this was my thing. So I you know after that, it, and it took a long time. You know, and I mean, one of the things people don't um, you know reasons why survivors don't really talk about it is just the shame i mean you just feel so yeah. humiliated how did you ever you know just asking myself how did i go along with this why did i see this you know why didn't i just leave why did after that first thing i should have just you know said you know fuck you but why did i keep going back and things like that but again and when you i went to the support group i found that was you know totally normal behavior for absolutely kind of relationship and so eventually, a couple of years later, I really, you know, felt strongly that I wanted to write a book, um, but I didn't want to write a memoir. It was just too raw, you know. Yeah. I, I just couldn't go there. So I wrote a novel and um, called "Girl on the Brink," and I made it a young adult novel. So the um, the heroine, the protagonist, is a seventeen year old reporter, and um, you know, she, she again, it's it sort of mirrors the progression of my relationship, but in a you know, much teenage kind of way. Um, but I also have her after the breakup and what I, I read some other YA books about the subject, which usually ends with the, at the breakup, you know? And um, so I went further with my book and I showed, cause I've, cause you have to do a lot of work. And, and sometimes it's the hardest thing is after that breakup is one to stay broken up. And two, yeah. to get over the, the um, shame and humiliation of right. it. So I had her, you know, and go to the support, find the support group and eventually heal. And she writes poetry about it and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, and that was a, you know, I just felt like um, I had to do something, you know, and I, I'm a writer. I write. So that was the way 
my, my small contribution to the goal of, you know, educating people about domestic violence. And, um, and it's funny, whenever I speak about this book and to writing groups or to libraries or, you know, just uh, general audiences, I always have people coming up to me, sometimes with tears in their eyes saying, this happened to me. Yeah. I, or I was married for 14 years, you know, to an abusive man. I oh, my gosh. You know, thank you so much for writing this. And, but again, it's it's just so common. That's that's what blows me away all the time. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, it's it's funny uh, <laughs> it, that when you talk about, you know, you just would get you flowers. You felt like you were in. Uh, that's something that I hear all the time. It's it's like this is what I want, right? This is what you're told that you should want. This is what all of those movies tell us what romance is. Mm-hmm. So why why does it feel, you know, it's it's so common, um, the amount of times that I hear the story. Like you said, like the details change, but wow, yeah, it's really yeah, incredible. It's basically the same story. And, it, you know, it felt it was only a year and a half of my life, but it, fe- it felt like 10 years. Of course. Really oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I got it. To, you know, it really feels like 10 years. It felt like so much longer because it was just such an intense thing. And it was just this, this up and down and, you know, the emotional manipulation and the abuse Absolutely. and stuff. It was just, you know, horrendous. Where do things stand now, like uh, with with you uh, and your life? And uh, I don't know if you know anything about, you know, what he's doing, but. Um, I have no idea what he's doing. He did uh, like a year ago. It was 10 years, almost to the, uh, I think, 10 years to the to the last court date. And I get this, um, you know, I still block him on Facebook mm-hmm. and all these uh, social media things. So I get this odd message, you know, via messenger. Oh, so-and-so you know, needs to speak to you urgently, you know, please call him at blah, 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 blah. And it was some, you know, random person. Then um, my stepmother got the same message. And then I got another message on on LinkedIn. And I and it was felt so good when I got this message. And I realized it was 10 years, all to, you know, basically to the day that, of that last court thing, maybe he thought it was enough time. And I just deleted it. I didn't feel anything. I just, and that was, it just felt great not to feel anything because the couple of times after the breakup, I had run into, I'd seen him at a couple of places. I would have mm-hmm. this huge physical reaction. My stomach would churn. My, my legs would feel like flimsy. Like I was going to, you know, my neck, I was, tr- I would tremble. I literally, my yeah. knees would kind of tremble. You'd PTSD. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, um, I no longer, I, I just, del- I felt nothing. Mm-hmm. And that's incredible. Yeah, and I just and I thought, wow, you know, that was just such a great feeling. Just, eh, you know, fuck you. Uh, yeah, I think I'm gonna fall for that again, you uh-huh. know. And um, and I actually saw him like a few months ago during the pandemic. I was just walking along um, Main Street here in L.A. and I hear my name and I turn around and there he is, you know. Oh, and wow. I just and I just uh, just raised my hand. I kind of like swiped my hand in the air like a I'd a fly and just turned around. And kept walking. <laughs> So it felt great, and um, and now I, uh, I I'm actually a faci- volunteer facilitator at the same support group that I went to. I had oh to, wow! I, yeah, I took a training. You have to be a, a in California take forty hours of state training to be a domestic violence counselor. So I did that during the pandemic, and um, it was all on Zoom. And uh, yeah, so now I'm a 
you know, go once a week and facilitate the, the support group. And um, so it feels good. That's, you know, hopefully giving, lending my experience, strength and hope to this, to this journey of people um, going through the same thing, you know. Absolutely. What yeah. advice do you have for somebody who's dealing with, like, you know, um, those feelings of like guilt and shame? Yeah, when you are not alone, this happens incredibly, it's incredibly common. Find a support group. There are many of them. Call the national hotline or the local hotline for domestic violence. They can refer you to one or to a shelter that will know of a support group. Um, because it really is, is so healing when you're with a bunch of people who know exactly what you're going through and right. how you feel. Because this is so such a thing, you know, so misunderstood, and, and it's not well understood even by professionals, you know, psychologists and all that. But, you know, to the outsider, it's like, well, why didn't you just leave? You know, why didn't you just leave? I, I, you know, really, you're to blame because you, you, you stayed in it. I mean, this is what people say. Or right. wasn't that enough for you, Christina? You know, you went back and, uh, you know, and you fit, makes you feel like a total, you know, idiot. And so there's not a lot of um, sympathy for um, victims of domestic violence. You know, in fact, it becomes, you know, there's all this, it's a lot of victim blaming. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can find a lot of strength in going to finding a support group, um, you know, and just know that you're not alone, you know, and this is incredibly common. Um, and one thing I've learned that it happens to people of all socioeconomic classes. Um, you know, there have been women who are doctors who have mm -hmm. uh, been in uh, abusive marriages, um, have been abused by doctors and lawyers. Um, there have been teenagers, you know, as well, teen, uh, teen mothers uh, abused and everything in between, um, you know, all races, ethnicities, religions, um, it, it, it goes across all boundaries. You know, this is a, a global thing. Um, so it's, you know, you are by no means alone because you feel very alone. You know, yes. one of the things too is that, you know, they isolate you. you know, that's one of the tactics is they isolate you from friends and family. Mm -hmm. So um, well, often you are alone, you know, even when you get out of it, you're still alone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, where can people find you? Where can they, you know, uh, I, I know you also do speaking events. <laughs> Maybe you'll be doing more of those when the yeah. pandemic is, you know, uh, coming yes, down. Yes, writing. I'm, yeah, I'm still. I'm, I'm writing. I'm working on a mystery story, which is actually about a sexual assault, and uh -huh. um, uh, that. And I do. Yeah, I've spoken about this a couple times at like women's groups, um, and again had the same reaction. You know, people coming up to me and um, I've got a new edition of Girl on the Brink coming out. It's also an audio book. Um, okay. I have one paperback copy left because um, I ordered a whole bunch for different events before the pandemic. And of course, that shut down everything. So I have one yes. copy mm -hmm. left. Um, so if anybody wants to uh, personalize signed copy, uh, 15 bucks with uh, all nice. mailing charges, uh, you know, it's the and mailing and shipping and all that stuff included. Um, but you can find me on my website, christinahogue.com and sign up for my website and, um, you know, look for the book on Amazon and all that sort of thing. Definitely. And audible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess my, my last question is, uh, like how do you feel changed because of this experience and what do you hope that other people take away from your story? 
Yeah, that this can happen, you know, and, and people, again, you know, I have a college degree, I was a professional journalist, I'd done so many things, I'd won prizes, and I, you know, and I've seen one, you know, again, one lawyer I went to and I told him some of the strangers, I could just see the puzzlement look at him mm-hmm. looking at my face, like, how did you get into this? It can happen to anyone. It mm-hmm. really can. And it's just so, um, yeah, it just, and, and you know, I just want people to educate themselves. I really think this should be taught in like high school as part of sex education, um, mm-hmm. these red flag signs, because they're very clear once you know what they are. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, about the control, the isolation, uh, the emotional manipulation, the love bombing, and all that, the profuse apologies, you know, um, and all that stuff. But I feel, yeah, I mean, as far as it's changed me, it's, it's just opened my eyes. I just didn't know that kind of thing existed. You know, I just thought, I, you know, first when I, I heard, you know, that therapist say about domestic violence and abuse, and I was like, well, that just happens to, like, women in, like, housing projects. I mean, right. you know, I really, I mean, yes, I was a snob. And, uh, you know, it doesn't. It's not. It's, it's, it's not at all. So it's just people. given me... Yeah. Yeah, and just much more keener insight into what mental illness is. And yeah. I mean, this guy, this this is not normal behavior. But, uh, no, but no. They, and I mean, hopefully he's getting the help that he needs. Yeah, I doubt it. They, they don't change. And, right. you know, at the support group, we, you know, they keep saying, you know, we don't want to say it's a mental illness because that implies they, they're doing it in mm-hmm. spite of, you know, they can't help themselves. But they, they right. do. They know what they're doing. They, they right. really do. But there's obviously, you know, it is um, so it's just made me a lot more, um, you know, I guess I was naive, you know, I, I just feel like I, I can see people and um, for more, I guess I, I thought everybody was okay, you know, that some people were crazy, but they were, they would be in a, in a psychiatric facility, but they're not, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of crazy people out there, dangerous people, but not everybody is um you know, as, as, as well-meaning as, as one likes to think, I guess. So it was kind of a rude awakening to human nature. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I'm so sorry that you, you know, had this experience, but I also, I I love that you're taking your experience and using it as an education tool, especially, I mean, I, I have such a soft spot in my heart for young adult uh, novels. And um, I wish that I had uh, had a book like this when I was, um, 14, 15. Um, so I, I'm really glad that people out there have access to a story like this, especially the part that you talked about with the healing afterwards, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. the work doesn't stop after a breakup. So, um, you know, thank you for, for that work, uh, and for the work yeah. that you're continuing to do. Well, you know, thank you for giving, uh, giving me a space to talk about it and, and, you know, helping spread the message as well. And I, I will say that another common thing and just is is that you'll never have a healthy that you kind of have this this black mark against you. You'll never have a healthy relationship again, mm-hmm. and that's not true. You know, yeah, so that's a common feeling, and that that is not true. Yeah, no doubt, absolutely. You uh, can survive, and and you can heal, and you can recover, and you can go on, and just eh, it's another thing that happened to you. Yes, definitely. Yeah, we we humans are resilient. Uh, mm-hmm. We persevere, so it's pretty. It's it's unfortunate that these things do happen, but it's also quite incredible to watch how people rise from the ashes. You know. 
yeah, I feel I'm a better person, you know, for it, actually. As I said, I'm a, <laughs> weirdly, you know, grateful for having mm-hmm. this experience. I mean, I wouldn't really want to go through it again. But, you know, at the same time, like, okay, that happened to me. I grew right. from it and um, overcame some pretty big hurdles. And I think I'm a better person for it, weirdly. Definitely. Sure. No, I, I understand. I, I know how that goes. But thank you so much for being here and talking with me and, uh, you know, being so vulnerable and sharing your story. And uh, are there any resources? I know you mentioned the uh, National Domestic Violence Hotline. So uh, I'll be sure yeah, to link that, that in the episode notes. Yeah, that would be great. Um, yeah, just there's usually like a county hotlines and things like that. But that one okay. can, definitely goes everywhere and um, they can, they, they'll link you to wherever you are. Awesome. Resources. Well, thank you so much, uh, Christina, for being here today. And um, listeners, thank you for uh, standing witness, as always. And my name is Rachel Dalton. You have been listening to Wine, Dine, and 69. Let's keep talking.